with us. So there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. I want to read it and we're going to pray. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, what we're about to look at is way beyond our ability to understand. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We desperately need your Holy Spirit to help us even a little way wrap our minds around your truth, especially what we talk about this morning, God. There's this war around us that we seem so oblivious to at times. We confess it. And God, we got to confess, too, that there seems many times we're just losing. And I just trust this morning, God, your word will help us. It will not simply instruct us, but it will cut and change so that your children here would walk in victory in a greater way because of the time we spend in your word this morning. So have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've talked a lot about the spiritual battle. We've viewed angels in the angelic realm. We've looked at our adversary, Satan, and our adversaries of demonic realm. We looked at our assistants last week the angels all around us. We talked about the war, the nature of it, where it began in the heavenlies, when Satan and his cronies rebelled against God, seeking the glory that was due only God himself, and how that, that war expanded to earth. And we find ourselves in the middle of a cosmic battle that is ruining homes, wrecking lives, churches. We're learning in the word, what we already see in reality, that the world is Satan's domain. He's the ruler of this world because the reality is Adam's sin turned this world over to the evil one. And Satan exercises a certain amount of authority. So we're in the middle of this thing called spiritual warfare, this battle that's fought in the heavenlies. It's expanded here. And because the battle's expanded to earth, we need help from the heavenlies to help us win this battle here on earth. The question on the table, though, would become, how do we keep from becoming losers in this thing? Or to put it another way, what will keep marriages from being ruined? What will keep children from being destroyed? What will keep somehow keep wickedness from ruining our lives? Where's that going to come from? I mean, look around. If you were to be honest and we were to be honest, we, we could look back at maybe even a day this week and say, I didn't do so good. Matter of fact, we, you might even say, I felt powerless. I was going through the day and this temptation came. I got angry over here. This happened. I got through the end of the day and went, wow, this is a war and I ain't doing so good. If you're like me, you probably had a day like that this week. And you look back and you're like, geez, I remember life being a whole lot easier. Where's this victory I'm supposed to have as a Christian? I am a Christian. After all, I should be doing better than it seems like I am. I need help. Where am I going to find this help? You're not the first to ask the question, but it's an important question. If we're going to be victorious in spiritual warfare, we need to see what Hebrews 2.9 said. 
We need to see Jesus. That sounds like a very simplistic thing, but I need to expound on that because it's life-changing. You see, to understand and put into practice all that Christ has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection, if we could see Jesus, we could see somebody who's already fought and won the battle for us. It's been our inability to see Jesus that has limited our authority and effectiveness. Therefore, my goal this morning is to help you and I see Jesus, to see his person, understand his payment, so we could live in victory in the position that he's purchased for us. We need to see Jesus. To see the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Man of all man, who helps us and indeed purchase victory. So who's, who's going to help us? Christ. And we need to see the person of Christ as he is. When Adam sinned, God's promise of a seed way back in Genesis, that this seed would come, that would crush the head of the serpent. And I had a question as I was going through this. I don't know if you've ever had this. Uh, why did God decide that the ultimate victory over the devil would come through a human line? I mean, why not at that moment of rebellion go... Done. There'll be no more discussion. I don't know all the reasons, but, but I think I know maybe one of them. As you look through the scriptures, you got to confess that as you look at this warfare and how it played out and how Jesus came to this earth and how he died and rose from the dead, a couple of things were put on display quite well. One is God's wisdom. Satan had no clue what was coming. God's wisdom was on display. And then in the perfect sacrificial death of Christ, you got to admit, God's justice was on display like no other way we could see it. And so as we look at this battle, one of the reasons I think God just didn't take him out at the beginning is that God would allow his wisdom to be on display and his justice to be on display. And the result of that would be is we would worship him. He would be worshipped. The very thing Satan didn't want, the very thing Satan was trying to attack, the very thing Satan probably thought would never happen because the Son of God's dying is the thing that happened. He's worshiped in a greater way. I'm deviating from where I'm going. I just got excited about that point. As some backdrop to kind of help us understand the person of Christ here, man is originally created with dominion over the earth. God said, here are the animals. You're the ruler. Take care of it. You name them. You, know, you oversee everything. And so God determined this entire universe from the very get-go would be governed by law, by justice. Redemption from the beginning to the end is based on a divine system of law. There's, in a sense, you could say a legal foundation. Adam chose to listen to Satan. And Adam, as the head of the human race, lost all legal rights, not only to his person, but to his domain. That's why 1 John 5, 19 says, The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And when you lose authority, you live under it. And that's what happened. When we sinned, we lost authority. That's why there's people in bondage. They have no power. If you were to go to a bank and open a, a checking account or savings account, you put your name down and you got money in the account, and I, Dwayne can't go to my bank and say, hey, give me $100 out of Matt's account. One, Cindy would never give me $100, okay? But let's say she did. Uh, they, they wouldn't because it's an authority issue. Dwayne doesn't have authority to take money out of my account. 
And that's what happened. We lost authority. We don't have the authority to go before God and say, God, I, I, I want this. I need power and because we don't have authority. We need the authority bought back. We're rendered, we are helpless as sinners. The wages of sin is death. We got nothing. And so we lost that when Adam sinned. And so we got a real problem. If Satan's domain was to be revoked, a way had to be found to redeem fallen man and recover his lost authority without violating the principles of justice, which God had declared and determined it would be his economy. So a member of the Adam's race had to be found who could qualify to enter the universal court to satisfy justice of God and claim Adam's lost domain and authority. Where was such a man who could do this? Where's a member of the human race whom Satan had no legal claim over? You see, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, at just the right time, when all the conditions were right, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born while the law was still in place, lived under the law, and he came and made a final payment for sin and to fulfill the law. And here's why this is powerful. Because if you look at that verse in Galatians 4, a son was sent, but the baby was born. You see, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have this union of two natures. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. Where this Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, poured himself into humanity, the seed of woman. And because he's an authentic human being, he could qualify as a member of the human race to enter into this legal battle. And since his divine nature was present in him, he was sinless and Satan had no claim on him. And if Jesus was not the Son of God, by virtue of supernatural conception, if he was merely just the son of Adam, we would disqualify. We would have no authority. But he was morally perfect, being divine. And so he was the perfect sacrifice. So in order to qualify legally, he had to be truly human. In order to qualify morally, he had to be perfectly divine. He was both. And so for Satan to establish legal basis of authority over sin, he knew, Satan, that he had to induce Jesus to sin. If he could induce him to sin, Jesus could no longer be that perfect sacrifice for us. We'd be in a heap of trouble. According to Genesis 3.15, God had to have a man to fulfill the promise. One who would not do what Adam did. The kind of man that would face the devil one-on-one -on -one and never yield. So God sent his son born of a woman, to reclaim the dominion that Adam had handed over to Satan. Adam ate apart from God's will, and he failed. Jesus refused to eat outside God's will and won the battle. I don't know what this means, but when you look back and see the temptation Adam, uh, that Adam faced and as to eat the fruit, and you look at the temptation Jesus had when Satan said, hey, turn these... Uh, stones into bread, it seems like Satan's into food. So I don't know what that means. Learn to watch out what you eat. But he, he hasn't changed his tactics. I mean, he still, he still tries to tempt us to violate God's word. If Adam and Eve would have just said, it is written, we're not going to do that. They didn't, but Jesus did. He said, it is written, and he refused to sin. But Satan's attack and his attacks are relentless. I, I tend to think Satan knew he was in trouble 
when Jesus was born. Now remember, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. So he's, he's kind of he's waging war and he's throwing out and attacking people. All of a sudden, the Son of God comes down to earth. Can you imagine? What, what do you do when, you, when, when you're not sure of what's going on? And, and he began to panic. So what did Satan do? Well, he came to Herod and said, why don't you bump out all these babies all around Bethlehem? That way, this, whatever Jesus is doing, we can stop it. Well, that didn't work. Well, he tried to entice him to sin in the wilderness. That didn't work so good. Well, then he started talking about a cross. He said, I tell you, I'll send Peter to try to discourage him from the cross. What well, didn't happen? Well, he entered Judas. See if somehow he can discourage or distract Jesus from the cross. That didn't work. You see, he didn't plan on God becoming a man. And then he attacked him at every turn trying to have that happen. Remember, as you look at Scripture, devil had been rolling along pretty good. He, he said, here, send me Adam. I, I'll take care of him. Give me Adam Jr. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, I'm going to cause him to sin. I'm going to run right over him. You just send, keep sending all these generations of Adam because they can't stand against my angelic power. You just keep the men coming. God says, okay, try this man. And he came down. And I don't think Satan saw it coming, and Satan knew what to do. And so when we read the Gospels, understand from an angelic, demonic, they didn't see Jesus coming. So now what you see is a battle, a war taking place of a frantic enemy who's trying to figure out what's going on. And we see Jesus. We find victory because the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. By his person, by his life, we regained legal authority. We're not under Satan's power. We can go to the bank and in the authority of Christ say, I need power. I'm calling upon Christ. And out of that account comes power, comes forgiveness, all because of what Christ did, which leads us to the payment of Christ. After sin entered the world, death became Satan's weapon. As we read Scripture, John 12, 31, he says he's a ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 said Satan's the god of this age. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. And so Satan comes around and he wields a weapon, and there's one weapon he wields we do not have an answer for. No human being does. It's called death. We all face it. And especially those outside Christ, they fear it. I mean, they stick their nose up towards God their whole life, but when they get to death, they're not laughing anymore because they don't have an answer. It's the one weapon Satan yields that probably is the most destructive is the fear of death. Ezekiel 18.4, even, even he gives us more insight into what this death could be. The soul who sins dies. You see, to conquer death, you had to pay for sin because the wages of sin is death. And there's only one way to pay for sin, right? Sacrificial death. There's only one way to conquer death through resurrection. So we needed someone to come, provide a perfect death, and rise up from the dead if death would be defeated. This is what Jesus did in his payment for sin. He entered the realm of death, which is Satan's domain, and he beat the devil in his own territory. You see, the cemetery is Satan's work. That's why death is feared. We know it's an enemy that none of us will be able to beat. So anyone who can beat death has broken the power, the biggest, you could say the baddest weapon Satan has. 
Jesus comes into the battle. If we could see Jesus, we'd no longer need to fear death. We would say, like we sang, oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your victory, oh, death? 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death because of Christ, because of what he's done, because of who he is. Now go to Colossians 2, powerful passage as we consider this payment of Christ. We consider who Christ is. He came to this earth. God who came to earth. God the Son, Son of Man perfect God-man, purchased back their authority. And we see something remarkable in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, you were dead in your, trans- your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. There's a lot there. But it describes the problem and the payment. We were dead in sin. I mean, it says it right there. We're dead in sin, hopelessly dead in sin. Dead means spiritually dead. Dead to God. Dead towards any hope of eternal life. We were dead to sin. That's the dilemma right here. But we're told that there's hope now. We find that there's hope. And that hope is a unique picture that gets painted for us. We're told there's a certificate of decrees against us. A certificate of of sins. Things that we sinned against the holy God. And we can't pay the debt. If you look at the text, and you were dead in the trespasses, uncircumcision your flesh, but God did something made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Again, look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Now, in Roman law, this is very instructive for us, when a person was convicted of a crime, they'd be sent to prison. Okay, very similar. But what is different is a list of offenses would accompany them. It would be posted on the cell door. The certificate of decrees would be posted and would identify why they're in prison. So if uh, I was thrown in prison for um, insurgents or whatever, whatever stealing, and I'd be in jail, and on the outside it would say, you know, Matt, and he was in here for stealing and whatever, all the other stuff here. And, um, and so that's kind of how it worked. Now, if you think about Jesus and what that looked like in his life and why, Pilate says, I found no fault in him, but the crowds yelled at Pilate and say, listen, if... If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. So with all that pressure, Pilate released him, if you remember, condemned Jesus to die. But in order to crucify him, remember, what did he have to put above him? A certificate. Something that stated why he was being crucified. What did Pilate put up there? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. As far as the crowd was concerned, Jesus was guilty of treason and blasphemy. As far as Satan was concerned, he was eliminating the seed of the woman who was to crush him. But little did Satan know that above that sign on a cosmic blackboard was another certificate of decrees posted on the cross, a divine certificate drawn up by God, bearing the name and the sin of every person. 
my name, your name, that we'd sin, all the sin we've ever committed, every charge valid, guilty, hopelessly guilty, convicted. The sentence is death. And with my name up there and all my sins and your name and all your sins posted, he who became sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus poured the punishment for all these sins. He died because we were guilty. Now the good part. When a criminal had finished a sentence and he'd paid his debt to society, this certificate of decrees would be taken off their prison cell and as they're walking out, there'd be a stamp. They would stamp on the certificate of decrees with all the sin and the stamp would be tetelaste, paid in full. That prisoner could walk away having his sins paid in full. And if the charges were ever brought up, if he once he left, left there and went down to the 7-Eleven, I don't think they had him then, and someone said, hey, listen, you're guilty. You should be in prison because of all the stuff you did. He said, tetelaste, paid in full. That's the picture here. Think of how rich that is. When Jesus was on the cross, he spoke words, tetelaste. It is finished. So now when Satan tomorrow comes into your face, and he says, you're no good loser. You're a sinner. You don't deserve any of this. You say, stay. It was paid in full at Calvary. That certificate of decrees, that sin, which was hostile to you. You were dead because of it. He made you alive by his payment. The perfect payment. He paid for your sins you and I are free to be declared the one thing we never thought, forgiven. Forgiven. And he also reclaimed the authority that Adam had. Relinquished. I just think that's amazing. I mean, let that sink in. My sins, which are hostile to me, which carry death as a penalty, Satan could always bring them up and does against me. See? See that, Matt? See that thought? See what you did there? See what you said there? You see all that? And he brings it before God. God says, not in my court. You don't understand something. Tetelestay. I paid for it. It's under the blood. You got no charge against my child. He's under the blood. That's good news. I don't know about you, but it's amazing news to me that we can live forgiven like that. I mean, think about that. All, anybody here struggle sometimes with shame and regret, or is it just me? Because it's just Dave and I. Okay. But if, if you, yeah, well, we could share what that's like. But it's hard because our mind, it's like a VCR, rewind. It just kind of keeps wanting to play and play. And, and, and when that happens, you need to step in and say, wait a minute, forgiven. Never to be charged against me again. I'm forgiven. The payment of Christ was that sufficient. Now you're saying, that's, that's too good to be true. I mean, I can be forgiven. You don't know what I did. I, I don't know what you did. I know what he did. And he can pay for it. You say, that's too good. I mean, how, how, do, how can I bank my whole life on this, man? You're asking me to bank all of eternity on what Jesus did. How do I know I'm not going to make a mistake in doing this? How do I know God really did this? Well, same way you do when you go to a store and buy something. You go to a store down a marketplace, which some of you will do because I run into you every now and then, and, uh, and you're picking up your chicken and all your stuff for lunch, they're going to give you a receipt. 
That is evidence that what you bought was paid for. You know, God has a divine receipt. You might not have known that. You say, what was that receipt? Early one Sunday morning, angel said, he's not here, he's risen. There's your receipt. You want to know the payment was secure? You want to know the payment was adequate? You want to know the payment was sufficient? Up from the grave he arose. There's your receipt. The resurrection is the receipt that God's payment was accepted. And when that payment came, when the resurrection occurred, you and I recognize we don't put faith into a dead Savior. The only way we can have a living faith is if there's a living Savior and he's alive, like we sung earlier. He's alive and we got God's receipt for it. Because without the resurrection, we're dead in sin. There's no victory, there's no authority. But because of the resurrection, we have victory and we have authority. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 becomes even more alive when we think about that in these terms. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became man. That through death he might destroy the one, Satan, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I mean, it's right there. He disarmed Satan. I mean, he took his best weapon, death, and de deactivated it. The roaring lion got his teeth pulled out. He just talks a good game. We can't do anything. Because Christ has risen from the dead, and he disarmed him. And so by his payment, he purchased our legal standing, justified before God, and by his resurrection, he reclaimed our authority. We now have authority, which brings us to our position in Christ. When you understand the person of Christ, he had to become a man to defeat Satan and ensure man's legal authority, the payment of sin to ensure our legal standing, and by resurrection, destroying death. We understand a little bit more now about where our victory lies, but how does that play itself out in the day-to-day? -day? Well, we need to share in Christ's triumph. If we're going to be victorious, we need to understand our position in Christ couple passages, Colossians 2, back there, if you were there, verse 9 through 10. We read this, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is ahead of all rule and authority. Two little verses that say a lot. You see, Satan's only powerful in our lives when we allow him to be. And Jesus I guess you could say Jesus' victory, his triumph, did not end in a resurrection because we read he ascended into heaven and he's seated the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned as a triumphant king in heaven. That's why he's able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because it has. He's enthroned in heaven. And what Colossians 2 is telling us, he's saying, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity, you're talking Godhead there, dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Okay, Christ has all authority. He sits enthroned, and when you come to Jesus by faith, you come to a crucified, risen, ascended Lord who has made it possible to share in his triumph. So much so, Ephesians even gets more specific. We read in verse 20 through 22 that he worked in Christ... Okay, his immeasurable greatness, his grace, his power, he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He's enthroned. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church. So you read that and you're like, okay, Christ ascended. He's seated in the heavenly. He's enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. There's no doubt, right? I mean, it's evident. His position is lordship, position of one of authority. Wow, if we could just, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, if we could just have access to that would be wonderful. Well, go to chapter 2, verse 6. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Please note the tense. Seated us, not will seat us. Spiritually speaking, your position in Christ is with the authority he's purchased. You are seated in the heavenly realm in that sense spiritually with Christ. In other words, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, and you now have available to you power to live a victorious Christian life. No wonder Satan works so hard to make us forget who we are, that we're his child, that we're God's sons and daughters. But Jesus triumphed over the devil through his blood, and the blood paid for our sins. It secured a place for us at God's table. We have authority with him in the heavenly places. So how do we exercise that? What does that look like? Understanding our position in Christ is crucial because Satan's strategy is to keep you from living that type of life, that victorious type of life. Satan doesn't want you living life in the power of Christ. He doesn't want you and I claiming the authority that is ours. He doesn't want us to remember the blood of Christ in the empty tomb. He wants to deceive us into thinking he has authority over us. The reality is you cannot beat Satan on your own. You're not good enough because you don't have any authority. You got nothing against Satan. That's why there's so many people who are helpless, who are so blinded, and we get frustrated with them. We're like, oh, why don't they just turn things around, those knuckleheads? Why don't I mean, how can they not see? I mean, how come they just keep getting blown over, over and over and over? It's because they got nothing. They got no power. They got nothing to have victory. And Satan wants to tell you as a Christian who has victory, who is seated in the heavenly realms. He wants you to think in terms of, it's helpless. I can't win this. I'm just going to fail. Those are all thoughts that he plants and plants. Satan does know something, though. He can handle you, but he can't handle Christ. He knows it. That's why he'll do everything he can to disconnect you from your relationship, or fellowship, I should say. That's why those times, in the, you're like, oh, why is it so hard to spend time in the Bible? I get up and I want to, but then the phone rings, this happens, or, or at night I like to spend a little time reading the Bible, but then this happens, this happens, and I want to pray, and all of a sudden all these things are, how come all those things come up at the worst time? We have an enemy who doesn't want you to stay connected. Because if you stay connected with God, it means you'll walk in victory. And then, then he's going to have a real rough time. That's why it's hard sometimes on Sunday morning. Like, oh, we got so much to do. It's getting, well, it's not nice today, but it's, it's going to get nice. You're like, oh, so, I could do yard work instead of go to church. Of course, Satan's like, oh, yeah, good idea. Go do some yard work. Because whatever he can do to leave a wedge in there and kind of begin to break fellowship with Christ 
he's gaining some ground. One day, a butterfly was fluttering in great fear, great fright. The butterfly had gotten stuck between two panes of glass. And there was a sparrow trying to peck at the glass, and it was trying to get the butterfly. And the butterfly, who was although it was encased in this glass, was afraid and was, was, was getting pecked at, it seemed, or it seemed like he was going to get pecked at by this sparrow. He's fluttering all around in terror of the presence of the sparrow. The butterfly couldn't understand that the pane of glass between him and the sparrow kept the sparrow from doing what it wanted to do. What the scared butterfly, what scared the butterfly was that the sparrow was right there, right in his face, right close by. If only the butterfly could have understood that that pane of glass was all he needed for protection, no matter how close that sparrow got. Tomorrow morning, Satan's going to be in your face. He's going to be trying to devour you. He's going to try to ruin your testimony and capture your children. But remember, Jesus Christ has slid a pane of glass between you and him, and that glass is in red, the blood of Jesus Christ. As a blood-bought child of God, you're safe in him, you're secure in him, you have authority in Christ, in your position of Christ, to wake up and say, Jesus, I'm in you, my life is hidden you, you've paid for my sins, you've risen from the dead, I claim that, and I'm going to walk in victory today. And Satan stops and he just pecks at the glass because he's got nothing. That's how we walk in victory. So when you get up tomorrow, get up in the authority of Christ. Christ has purchased authority for you. Live under that Christ's authority. Share in it and walk in victory. So fight from your position of victory. You don't fight for it. We fight from it. Jesus has already won this victory for you by his person and by his payment. So let's live under that position. Let's pray. Lord, these truths are so far beyond, even as I talk, my ability to communicate them as I, as I should, I know that. Man, these are life-changing. Lord, my prayer for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, help us to understand in a little greater way what it means to be in Christ. Help us to understand the profound implications of being forgiven. Lord, of being delivered. Please help my brothers and sisters today and when they wake up tomorrow. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would keep on their mind the truth that in Christ, they're free and they have authority to walk in victory. They need not cower. They need not fear. They need not expect defeat, but God can expect victory because of the certainty of your death and resurrection and ascension. And God, I think something life-changing will take place in our community when we live that way. Not only will we experience victory on a personal level, not only will we begin to live um, patterns of obedience where one time there were patterns of disobedience, but God, there'd be a new dynamic in our personal lives which would then enter our corporate life. I mean, at Elam Mission Church, 
would be made known by just one thing, Jesus, your reality operating in our lives. And might that be true not only of Elam, but all our other brothers and sisters throughout our communities around us. We pray for them as well. God, work in us. And we know a great part of that work is helping us to see who we really are in you. So help us see you, Jesus, so we could see the truth about our victory. It's your name I pray. Amen.